Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2 is where we will be in God's Word together this morning. Excuse me, I'm getting over a cold, so I might not be able to holler like I'm used to. Um, But uh, we're going to see. Praise God anyhow. Uh, As Timothy said, I'm Evan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central and so glad to be able to to gather together and uh, just really feel uh, excited. I know we've had a lot of shifts over months in the midst of COVID and and as the world starts to open up more and more, starting to see faces that are familiar more and more and just really glad uh, to, to see those faces and gather together in fellowship. So, uh, welcome back uh, to some of y'all. Welcome uh, to others, and uh, praise the Lord uh, to all. If this is your first time with us, we've been walking through a series, uh, a sermon series entitled uh, That You May Know, uh, where we have been considering uh, the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and yet, uh, the Gospels, and really all of Scripture, uh, do not call us to just consider his life, but to know, uh, to know uh, God as Lord, to, to know uh, him who was manger born, uh, but on a tree, he died to save humanity. And so to that end, uh, we're, we're going to read uh, the Christmas story this morning. I don't know if you ever heard a sermon on Christmas in June, but you're going to get one today, uh, and it's going to be good because... Uh, Uh, His advent is good news all year round. Amen? Amen. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you came down from glory and you were and are many things to us. Lord, in this moment, I, I feel my, my helplessness. And Lord, we need your help to really receive what you have for us today through your word. So help me to serve as one who serves in the strength that you provide, that you may be glorified through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as I speak to the ear, would you speak to the heart and transform lives? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. From 1919 to 1931, the Arkansas Diamond Corporation led an escapade of many moments of discovering various diamonds in the land. Uh, over the course of their work, they found thousands of diamonds. Most notable amongst their finds was one that was found by accident in 1924 by Wesley Basham. Wesley was doing the work that he does in trying to find diamonds, separating the minerals, the, the rock, the mud, the water, the elements through the various mechanics of the equipment. And as he was working, there was a rock that didn't seem like a rock. It was shinier than usual that got stuck in his machine. And so he paused the machine and he looked and he found a, a diamond like no other. This diamond was 40 and a quarter carat diamond. You know, I'm seeing some women with their eyes lighting up. That in this moment, Wesley found the largest diamond in the history of the United States. And he found it, this extraordinary thing amongst ordinary dirt, minerals, and mud. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the most extraordinary things can be found amongst the most ordinary circumstances? We have this Advent story, and the story of Jesus' birth is scandalously ordinary. There's many things that are going on in this passage, but what we will see is the scope of God's glory, even in the midst of meager circumstances. We will see three things as the story unfolds. We will see the providence of God, the lowliness of God, and the peace of God. First, we, we see the, the providence of God. We see this in verse 1 through verse 5. Luke identifies the historical circumstances of Jesus' birth. Caesar, Augustus, has made a decree. His power is on display. The known world, all those in the Roman Empire, must register themselves in their hometown. And he did this in order to see what resources his subjects have in order to tax them for the benefit of Rome. This registration was an act of subjugation. It was an act of oppression. And it would seem that Caesar is in control. It would make sense 
Augustus enacted emperor worship among his subjects. He considered himself divine, so certainly he would think of himself as all-powerful and in control. With a wave of his hand, the known world responds. It was seen that Quirinius is in control. Even perhaps King Herod, back in chapter 1, is in control. But Luke, ever so subtly, shows us who is really in control. When he tells us Joseph of Nazareth takes his pregnant wife Mary to Bethlehem, where Jesus will be born. Luke implies what the Gospel of Matthew makes explicit, that there's an alternative decree going forth. At 750 years before Caesar Augustus' decree, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 decreed that the Son of God, the Messiah for all mankind, will be born in Bethlehem, the lineage of King David. What we see here is God's providence. Providence means that the creator God governs all things in all ways at all times. In other words, he's in control. His hand is on everything. It reminds me of my daughter. My daughter is three years old, and she is full of energy, and she is trying to figure out her world as a three-year-old. And so because of that, she doesn't know how to do everything she wants to do. An example of that is doors. She cannot open all the doors in our house, though she tries. So she'll walk to a door, and she'll put her hand on the knob and start to turn it, and she's struggling to turn the knob. She doesn't have the strength, but she doesn't want to ask us for help, and so she puts on the drama. So she starts struggling. I can't, I can't do it. So that we can all hear and so I ask her, do you, do you want some help? And no, she just keeps on going, oh, eat, I can't, oh, can't do it. And so I take the hint, and I walk up to her, and I don't want to do it for her. So I'll put my hand on hers, and we will turn the doorknob together, open the door, and she will walk through. And she immediately says, I did it. And she's jumping up and down, saying, I did it, I did it. Never mind that my hand was on top of hers. Never mind that it was my power and ability that actually turned the knob that enabled her to walk through the door. In this story, we see Caesar Augustus, and he's thinking to himself, I did it! He thinks he's in control. Governor Quirinius thinks he's in control. He's thinking... I did it! But God used them to fulfill his prophecy. So you must look past Augustus and Quirinius and all the other hands to the hand of God. You can pretend that they're in control if you want to. You can pretend you're in control if you want to. You can pretend that your alarm clock woke you up this morning. You can pretend that your driving skills got you made it here safely this morning. But the reality is that God placed his hand on your hand and mine. And whatever power we think we have and whatever power we might see in the world, God's power is really the one behind it all. As Colossians 1.17 said, he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And so we don't look at Caesar or ourselves, we look to the hills from 
where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord. Amen, somebody. Secondly, in this passage, we we see the the lowliness of God. We see this in verse 6 and verse 7, it shows us. Joseph and Mary, while in Bethlehem, they go into labor. Luke doesn't give a lot of detail, but you, you might think with this being the Son of God that this would be a little more extravagant, right? Uh, I mean, Mary does not go to a palace. She doesn't go into labor at a castle. There's no glowing light around them while this is happening. You get, you get this sense in reading the narrative that it's a little grungy and understated. I mean, Mary might could have looked at the stable and, you know, said, oh, uh, Angel Gabriel, I need you to work on my accommodations. But she didn't do any of that. They stay in the stable with these grungy animals. There was not room for them to have the baby in a normal space. And scholars debate what the, the end is here. Uh, it wasn't like Joseph and Mary went to the Ramada and the, and the manager was like, sorry, we're all booked up for the night. And I'm not going to get into all the weeds of what's going on there. Just know that Joseph and Mary are going into labor in very unusual space and very unusual circumstances. And then Mary wraps Jesus in swaddling cloths and places him in a manger. A manger was a feeding trough for animals. It was the place for the animals to drink water or to eat hay or slop. This was not the most sanitary place for a newborn and certainly not an appropriate place for the Son of God. And yet, there he was laid. So underwhelming. So lowly. How do we make sense of that? For those of you that are taking notes, I would encourage you to write 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 down in your notes. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 gives a very pointed understanding of this lowly display. When Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus left the splendor and majesty of heaven and came down to be born in a stable and a feeding trough. Why? For you. He embraced the most meager circumstances that we may know the richness of his kingdom. And even as you see his ministry progress, uh, Jesus continues to identify with lowliness. He preaches his first sermon in Luke chapter 4, and he quotes Isaiah 61, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. He talks about how the way things are done to the least of these, they are done unto me. Over and over again, we see him associated with the margins, with the down and out and forgotten. Why? Because that is the extent to where he wants his glory to go. To the farthest reaches of physical and spiritual destitution, he wants his glory there. 
As the song says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. I had to get at least one Christmas song in there. So we encounter a God who is lowly, and we know that he cares about the least, the lost, and the left out. He cares about the one that, that feels so insignificant that you wonder that if you were gone today, would anybody care? He cares about the one that feels so alone that you struggle to believe that your life has any meaning or purpose. He sympathizes with our infirmities. Matthew 11 tells us he is gentle and lowly. Thirdly and finally, we see in this passage the peace of God. We get to verse 8 and the scene changes. It shifts from Joseph and Mary and their new baby to shepherds in the middle of nowhere. An angel of the Lord appears to them. We, we see this kind of continuation of lowliness as shepherds were very much so in the margins of society. I mean, shepherds didn't even have to respond to the registration because they didn't have anything to register. What are they going to do, get some cotton? So these shepherds didn't have to go anywhere. They didn't have to go to a hometown. And the angels appear to them. We're not certain why them. Scholars debate this back and forth. Some say it's because of the motif of, of a shepherd is a recurrent theme in the Old Testament, especially around the Lord's care for his people. So this is one of those references. Some say it's because those shepherds were likely specialized shepherds and that because of where they were likely located, that they were probably raising sheep that were specifically going to be sacrificed in the temple. And the angel is coming to proclaim a better lamb of God. Some say it's because this is one of several examples of the Lord choosing the least likely and the least credible witnesses to proclaim his kingdom, to put on display his sufficiency. Because if you were trying to fabricate a fairy tale story to fool people into believing, shepherds and women and the poor and so on, these were, these were the least compelling witnesses. And yet these are the ones over and over again God chooses. There are several considerations for the why, but it's the what that sticks out here. What is happening in these verses? Verse 11 and verse 14 is where we most clearly see it. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord proclaims, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior. Christ, Lord. Nowhere else in the New Testament are these three words put together so succinctly. This is who was born in the feeding trough. Not a moral teacher, not an exceptional prophet, Savior, Christ, Lord. And then we get to verse 13 and 14, and it's like a flash mob breaks out. You ever been in a flash mob? I don't know if anybody. No? Okay. Yeah. One day, that's my bucket list, getting a flash mob. Uh, you, know, you know, in a flash mob, you know, you're at the mall and everything's just normal. And all of a sudden, the, the whole assembly just breaks out in a, in a choreographed performance, right? We just do a flash mob at church. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Wheels are spinning, though. Verse 8 through verse 12 
An angel of the Lord appeared. The glory of the Lord is all around. But then verse 13 and 14, a flash mob breaks out. And the heavenly hosts, an army of angels appear. In the black church, they call that a praise break. It happens, and this army of angels, they cry out, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And in this, we see a bit of God's purpose, his mission for the world. How can we sum up the mission of God? Glory to God and peace to man. Glory to God and peace to man. Glory ever on display given to God and peace immeasurable to the world. But the issue for us is that we too often want the peace without the glory. What do you do when you don't have peace? Some of us, we we snap at our friends and family. Some of us, we toss and turn for hours in the middle of the night. Some of us, we we numb out with Netflix or alcohol or pornography. We all are looking for peace, and and we, we feel that, don't we? It's not a hard sell to say that this world is severely lacking peace. And to that, the scriptures proclaim a savior, Christ, Lord, the one who rules and reigns over everything, and all you have to do is lay down your crown. Who is Lord of your life? What is Lord of your life? Because that is where you go for your peace. Five times we see God called the God of peace, Jesus will say, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Paul would say, Jesus is our peace. If we want true and lasting peace, we must come to Jesus. You can't have his peace and then try to keep his glory. I like how John Piper puts it, God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. Peace comes when we give him his due glory. Tony Evan puts it this way, peace among people is possible when humanity is living at peace with God and submitting to his kingdom rule. You want to see peace in your life? You want to see peace in this world? Come to Jesus. You can try to get it apart from him, and certainly we all try, but it won't last. Jesus, his coming is a scandalously ordinary event. And yet the angels know something in this story that we too often neglect. They celebrate this King Jesus. They, they know what, he, what has arrived. They know what is coming. And by his grace, he offers that to us. If we're willing to take it, this triumphant, victorious King, October 30th, 1974, one of the greatest sporting events of the 20th century happened. Rumble in the jungle, epic fight between Muhammad Ali and the undefeated world heavyweight champion, George Foreman. Ali was considered the underdog. Most believed that he wouldn't be able to withstand Foreman's legendary heavy punches. 
These men came together to face off, and 60,000 people attended. One billion viewers tuned in, and as they came out of their corners at each other, Foreman looked to have the upper hand. He was pummeling Ali, hit after hit, keeping him on the ropes. Folks couldn't turn away as it looked like Ali was about to be overcome. But then round seven came. And you start to notice that Foreman started slowing down. His punches began to soften. You can actually watch this fight on YouTube and you see Foreman starting to wear himself out beating up Ali until all of a sudden the tables turn and Ali seems to come back out of nowhere beating back Foreman until round eight when Ali seems, uh, when Ali uh, wins the, the match with a knockout over Foreman. And the crowd goes wild as Ali emerges as the undisputed champion. And then you find out later that the whole thing was a strategy. Ali went into the fight ready to take punches, to take the hits, and he was just waiting for his time to strike. And he made popular the technique known as the rope-a-dope where you take hits from your opponent and you might look like you're backed into the ropes, but you really just let the opponent wear themselves out as you plan your moment to strike. If you'd say amen faster, I'd get to the end sooner. What we see here in this story in the birth of Jesus is something that is scandalously ordinary. He came in looking like the underdog. He came in looking like he could not handle the weight of this world looking like he could not handle the weight of the sins of the world. But little did we know that he came and he took some hits. Little did he know that he was just waiting to, to uh, have his, his strike. And it looked like the suffering of this world was about to overcome him. But we know something that many others don't, don't we? That victory actually came. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Thanks be to God that he gives victory through Jesus Christ. We see this great king. He is Savior, Christ, and Lord. He puts on display his providence, his lowliness, and his peace. But how will we respond? May it be so that we will behold him and proclaim with the angels, glory to God in the highest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Lord, we, we do confess we need you. You came down for our sake, and you came down for your glory. And Lord, we do not turn to you as we should. And in your lowliness, you persist with us. In your providence, you strengthen and hold us up. And with your peace, you allow us to know your grace, your love, and your mercy. Lord, would you help us to look to you more? Would you help us to worship you? In Jesus' name, amen.